0: Well, good morning. Um, <laughs> I guess we'll just start over there. Yeah. I thought it seemed like it wasn't as loud as it usually is, but I maybe they just keep it a little lower than usual. All right. Well, um, yeah, so we're in the Gospel of Matthew. That's where we're at this morning. We're continuing in this. Um, said a moment ago we'll read scripture in a little bit and I just want to begin this morning by actually uh, asking you just to do kind of a little bit of a thought experiment with me um, to imagine that you have a friend who is a vegan now maybe you maybe you are a vegan maybe you actually do have a friend who is a vegan but I want you to go a little bit deeper into this imagining with me. Because I, I don't just mean someone who's kind of a, a cultural vegan who might sneak a little bit of like real ice cream when they're on vacation or something like that. Or I'm not talking about one of those new money vegans who, you know, they, they had, a, had a girlfriend in college who was a vegan and so they, they all of a sudden became a vegan. I'm talking about kind of like a real deal vegan, like multiple generations of vegans. Like, like no one in their family has eaten meat for generations or, or any animal product. And, and in fact, the last time that their family did eat any kind of meat or animal project, it was like the worst chapter in, in the life of their family. And, and they knew that from that point on, <clears throat> they weren't ever going to do that again. So this is, this is the real deal. Okay? This is next level veganism, right? So you've got this friend, you know this is their story. It's not just something they, they do, but it's really part of their identity. People know them for this what makes them unique it's their thing now imagine you walk into your favorite steakhouse here in Kansas City Plaza 3 801 chop house capital grill whatever it is and and you see this you see this picture this is your friend at the table your vegan friend about to take a huge bite out of this giant steak and they've got like deviled eggs topped with bacon all around and you're like what in the world Is happening. It's like you wouldn't even believe it if you weren't seeing it for your own eyes. Like if someone said, I saw this friend at, you're like, no, there's no way they would do that. Well, something like this, but even more shocking, happens in the passage we're going to look at in the Gospel of Matthew. And let me set the scene for you. Jesus is in a boat with his disciples. And this is how the scene ends in Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. It says, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Shocking, right? Or or not. Because you see, it actually doesn't seem that shocking, right? This is sort of what we expect the disciples to say. Jesus, you're God. You're awesome. But in reality, this is one of the most earth-shattering moments in the gospel. Why is this? Because what you have is 12 Jewish men worshiping a human being, Jesus. Now, Jesus is more than just a human being. That's Matthew's whole point in in writing the gospel. But he's not less than that. And at this point in the story, the gospel's only, the the, the disciples, they only know Jesus as a human being. What would it take for you to worship Jesus? someone, to worship another human being. And I don't just mean sort of admire someone or, or wonder at their abilities or their accomplishments or their character. I don't just mean like being amazed by an Eric Hosmer home run or, or an amazing catch by Lorenzo Cain or, or even being stunned by a beautiful painting or work of literature. Because we may wonder in those moments. We may experience awe in those moments. But look, I, I'm not about to fall down and worship Locaine. As the God of the universe i 'm just not, but that 's what these twelve jewish guys that 's what they do with Jesus in this moment. they worship him as the creator and ruler of the universe. now you may be thinking but bill isn 't this kind of the ancient time and didn 't i remember kind of like from history class like the pharaohs or the like the emperors in Rome, didn't they sort of like, weren't they kind of viewed as gods and didn't people sort of kind of worship them a little bit? Is that kind of one of these situations where they see Jesus as this kind of semi-divine ruler being? And, and it, it is true. In the Roman Empire, the emperors and other rulers in the ancient world were often seen as kind of god-like figures or semi-divine beings. But there was one group of people in the ancient world that never viewed people that way, that never viewed kings that way, that never worshipped human beings or even saw them as semi-divine, and that was the Jewish people. They would have never done this Leading New Testament scholar Richard Bacham in his book, Jesus and the God of Israel, he explains that the Jewish people at this time, they are strictly monotheistic. They only worshipped one God. And they saw the worship and obedience to that one and only God as the defining characteristic of our, their identity. It wasn't just something they did or kind of one aspect. It was who they were. For them, God, Yahweh, that's the God's name in the Old Testament, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he was understood to be the true creator and ruler, the only creator and ruler of the universe. And this is unique in the Greco-Roman world at this time. Most people worshiped many different gods. So for a Jewish person in the first century, this what was what set them apart, that they worshiped one God and him alone. Worship was the recognition of the divine identity the creator and ruler. Look at, listen to how Richard Bachum how he frames this. He says, Worship in the Jewish tradition is the recognition of the unique divine identity and so must be accorded to the one who created and rules all things, but may not be accorded to any other beings, all of whom are created by and subject to the one true God. To worship for a Jew is to say the being I'm worshiping is the creator and ruler of the universe. It couldn't mean anything less than that. And Jews, they did not worship people or angels. They only worshiped the one true God. But here we are. This is how our story ends this morning, with these words. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So how did this happen? Because again, the the Jews, they were like, ultra-strict vegans in a world of omnivores. And they had been for generations. It, this is extreme. This is shocking, unbelievable that they would have done this. And Matthew, another Jewish man, is writing all this down for us. This, this heresy of the greatest kind, worshiping anything other. This is what the Jews knew. Worshiping anything other than Yahweh, it was a cataclysmic sin that led to them being exiled and their destruction. So how is this happening? The only way this can happen is that for a brief moment, they actually think that Jesus is Yahweh, the one true God. What would it take for you to worship somebody? What would it take for them? What led them to this point? What happened on that day that led them to the point of doing this thing that they could not have conceived of doing? What led them to the point of worship? Well, that's what we're going to see this morning. Because this event of them worshiping Jesus in this boat occurs after two of the most well-known Jesus stories that Matthew records for us in chapter 14. And obviously this was quite a day for them and for it to end like this. And none of them could have predicted or even imagined what that day could have been like or that it would end in that way, but it did. But the day began essentially the same way that Matthew has shown us over and over again in the Gospels, with someone wondering who exactly Jesus is and where he gets his power and his authority. And there are various theories about Jesus at this time, because Jesus doesn't fit into any of the normal categories. People are developing theories of who is this person? He's just not normal. And so back in chapter 12, we saw the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they're thinking that Jesus has to be doing these miracles and this teaching by the power of Satan, That's the only thing that they can come up with. And then we have the people in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. They think that Jesus is just kind of too big for his britches. They think this is just Mary's son who grew up working in the carpenter shop. He's nothing special. What gives him the right to be teaching in the synagogues? In chapter 14 here this morning, opens with a regional ruler named Herod, thinking that Jesus is John the Baptist come back from the dead it's at this point that Matthew then takes a little bit of a detour to explain to us how and why John the Baptist died. And you see it in in Matthew chapter 14 verse 1. It's on page 820 in the Pew Bible. So if you want to kind of follow along this morning, we'll be in Matthew chapter 14. It's on page 820 there. This is what Matthew 14.1 says. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, a Tetrarch is just a ruler over a fourth of the kingdom. He was one of the regional rulers. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead, and that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And this is where Matthew then begins to explain how is it that John needs to be raised from the dead? Why is he even dead? And he goes into this story because Herod is well; he's not exactly the picture of mental stability, and and he has thrown himself a huge birthday celebration. In fact, uh, this is fun fact for your New Testament trivia: this is the only time a birthday party is mentioned in the New Testament. Um, and let's just say it's not exactly a kid-friendly party. Um, Herod and all the guests, are they're drinking, they're drunk, and Herod's, and this is going to kind of follow the, the, the train here, Herod's mistress's daughter. So Herod has this mistress. Her daughter is dancing for all of them, and Herod loves it so much, he vows in front of everyone that he's going to give her whatever she wants. And so her mom, Herod's mistress, tells her, go ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter, Because she hated John the Baptist. He had been criticizing the relationship between her and Herod. And so Herod, not wanting to sort of lose face in front of all of his guests, goes through with it and has John executed and his head delivered on a platter to the party. And so John dies. And then Matthew picks up the story in that moment. And it says, after Jesus hears about this, he wants to go and be by himself. I think we can forget about this if we're not as familiar with the Gospels, but Jesus and John were close. They were cousins. John the Baptist was just a few months older than Jesus. They would have grown up together. They would have spent time as family gatherings together. They were close. This is really hard news for Jesus. This is a big loss. Jesus wants to go and be alone, but he doesn't get to be alone for long, and we read what happens next in verse 13 of chapter 14. Now when Jesus heard about John's death, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns, and when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away. So this is kind of a new, interesting discipleship strategy. Send people away from Jesus. That's what they're saying. So send people away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish. Jesus said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking five loaves and two fish, he broke he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they ate and they were all satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5000 men besides women and children. What would it take for you to worship someone? Remember Matthew, who's writing these things down for us. He was here. I mean, imagine what it was like for him to relive this story as he's writing it down in in his gospel. This is a painting of that scene by the 19th century French painter and illustrator James Tussaud. You can imagine Matthew in that moment with the crowds. He's tired. He's hungry, just like everybody else. He, he's probably as confused as anyone about how this would work. I mean, their plan of sending people away from Jesus wasn't great, but this plan was crazy. How are we going to feed all these people? And maybe he thought back to his days as a tax collector, how, how different his life was then when, when he had wealth and power and status. And now he's handing out some kids' lunch to a crowd of hungry people. But somehow the food kept coming. He would hand some out, but his basket just never got empty. He couldn't explain it. And he could, you can could imagine he's looking around at Peter, saw the same thing. In fact, none of their baskets were running out. How is Jesus doing this? He thought, well, how is this happening? As someone who had been an ally with the Romans, Matthew knew power, or he thought he knew power, but this was different. Jesus commanded the situation with an authority and an abundance that Rome knew nothing about. No political leader had ever done anything like this, especially not with this kind of compassion. And Matthew got to be a part of it all. Someone who should have been despised by Jesus and his people welcomed him, and now he's carrying out a basket of bread that didn't exist 15 minutes ago. Who was this Jesus? What would it take for you to worship someone and in the story, Matthew's point is clear that Jesus is the compassionate king. So you can trust him with your needs. And John tells the story in his gospel. Uh, there's four gospels. This is the one miracle story that's in every single one of them. And when John, uh, not John the Baptist, but the apostle John writes his gospel, um, He tells us that after this moment, the crowds, they want to make Jesus their king right then and there. His provision for them was all the evidence they needed. The question for us is, do we really believe that Jesus wants to and can provide for what we need? Are we really trusting to meet our needs to the full, to completely satisfy us? And here's the thing for us, Jesus far more often provides for us in the ordinary than in the miraculous. But this doesn't make his compassion any less real for you and for me. I mean, how does God provide food for us every single day? Well, through the job that he's given you so that you can earn money. Through the work of farmers, grocers, and many others who work to have food in the store so that you can buy it. Through the utility companies that bring power to your home to be able to cook it and refrigerate it. See, Jesus is providing for all of our needs on a regular basis through this creation and through his people. He has amazing compassion mediated through the world through his his people and his creation. In what ways are we missing Jesus' invitation, command even to participate in that compassionate provision? His his followers wanted to send people away, but Jesus wouldn't let them miss an opportunity to see up close and personal his work of compassion. I think we tend to want to have people help themselves, but Jesus says, you do it. Or better yet, let me do it, and you'll get to be a part of it. He wants the best for you, and he will meet your needs. And sometimes he'll even use you to meet the needs of others. Jesus made all of this out of nothing, after all. He is the creator and ruler of the whole thing, as the disciples are about to profess, but not quite yet. Because Matthew doesn't even give us any commentary on this scene. He just records it, and then he goes right on to the next miracle. You can imagine as he's writing, sort of his pen shaking with anticipation about what's about to happen next. Because there's more. Because to be worthy of worship, Jesus can't just be the compassionate king, a nice guy. He also is the powerful king. And I told you at the beginning, this was a long day for them. And none of these disciples are getting any sleep tonight. Because believe it or not, feeding probably around 10,000 people wasn't the most stunning thing they were going to see that day. And after they'd eaten, after they'd collected all the food that was left over, Jesus at that point dismisses the crowds back to their homes, and he sends the disciples away. It's a really strong word there. He insists that they start across the lake in the boat, and that he will join them later on. He doesn't tell them when or how, but that he's going to meet up with them later. And Jesus goes up into the hills to pray. The whole reason he came there in the first place. And a number of the disciples are fishermen. They've spent a lot of time on the lake. They know how to sail a boat. And they also know how dangerous the lake can be. And the Jews for this time see the water represented chaos anyway. In the Sea of Galilee, there was storms that could come up quickly without very much notice. And that's exactly what happened on this evening. The disciples, again, they'd already had a long day. They'd been in the boat for a long time, and they're probably about three miles from shore, and they're fighting a windstorm. They had been battling the storm for a night hour, about nine hours, and they're utterly exhausted when it, they see something on the water, someone coming toward them, and they totally freak out. I, they, they lose it. They're terrified. They, they think it's a ghost or an angel or not. They don't know what it is. If you look at verse 26, it says, But when the disciples saw him on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And when Peter hears it, he has a bit of an unexpected response basically says, okay, Jesus, if this is really you, then tell me to come out on the water. Which is kind of a crazy thing to do. And as I thought about this text, I don't really know what Peter's endgame in this. Because if it was a ghost actually, and he doesn't say come out on the water, Peter's like, okay, cool. I know it's not Jesus, but now if he says Jesus does say come out and walk on the water, okay, now I know it's you, Jesus, but I'm just going to stay in the boat. I don't know what Peter was thinking in that moment, but he says, if it's really you, Jesus, Tell me to come walk out on the water. And Jesus says, come. And then Peter actually does it. He obeys Jesus in this moment. He gets out of the boat. I can't explain it, but he steps onto the water and starts walking towards Jesus. And now I'm sure the rest of the disciples at this point, now they're really freaking out. And you can almost imagine Peter, he looks around at the wind, the waves. He looks back at the disciples freaking out saying, Peter, what what are you doing? And it's like Peter all of a sudden has this moment of, yeah, what the heck am I doing? I can't walk on the water. I'm going to die. And he starts to sink. And in that moment, he cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And the 19th century German painter, Philip Rusch depicts the moment this way. We see Jesus' response in verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand. He took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And then verse 33, And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. There you have it. Twelve Jewish guys worshipping a rabbi they'd known for a year or so. Vegans eating steak. Doing the one thing that a Jew would never do, worship a man. They called him the son of God. They were afraid and they worshiped again, of course they were afraid, but if this is who Jesus is, we can trust him with our fears. There's nothing that he is afraid of, nothing that he can't trample underfoot. And whatever you are afraid of, and let's be honest, there are times when the sea of danger and chaos feels endless. There is much to fear. Right? This morning in Orlando is yet another reason, another vivid reminder of that. But I don't think it's incidental that twice on this day, Jesus goes away by himself to pray. Did you notice that? one of the most effective means of quieting our fears is spending time with the one who rules the universe who can quiet the storm. Matthew saw Jesus walk on the water he felt the calming waves and wind and they know if Jesus can do that trample on the evil places and there's nothing he can't do only God can do that and he might just be worthy of worship But there's one more little detail of the story that I I can't get over. And it's stuck with me ever since I was reading through Matthew months before we preached it. Because yes, we need a compassionate king, one who cares for us in the ordinary. And we need a powerful king with the strength to silence our fears. But that's still not enough because we don't deserve any of it. So how do we get it? And this is the part of the story that I love that's just continued to stick with me. You see, Jesus is also the merciful king. Because before he quieted the storm, Peter sees Jesus trampling on the the sea and for some reason, again, decides that he's going to go out there and join Jesus. And then when he starts to sink, Jesus doesn't just say to him, well, Peter, this is on you. (laughs) I said, trust me. You're not trusting me. Good luck. He he doesn't rebuke him and say, Peter, you have little faith. Come on, get your act together. And then reaches out his hand no, not the king that we worship. As soon as Peter says, Lord, save me, Jesus immediately reaches out his hand. And then when he took hold of him, he said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? See, Jesus didn't make Peter somehow feel bad first or anything. As soon as he expresses a cry for help and says, Lord, save me, Jesus immediately reaches to him. Yes, he rebukes Peter because he has so much more in store for Peter if only he'll trust him. But immediately, God himself, our God, the creator and sustainer, immediately he reaches out and takes Peter by the hand. The merciful king. Finally, we have hope. We can trust him with our failures. We can't earn his compassion. We can't can't wield his power. And yet he offers such mercy. If Peter fails... I mean, think about this. If Peter fails, the one who saw and experienced all this kind of stuff up front and, and in his life with his very own eye, if he fails, then, then you've got to know that you and I are going to fail. All of us. Our, our faith isn't perfect. Our, our ability to worship is inadequate. But, but we don't have to have enough faith to walk on water. We just have to have enough faith to cry out, Lord, save me. And he will. Because it's exactly why he came. Way back in Matthew chapter 1, way back when we were in Advent, remember, in the name of Jesus was revealed that they we were going to name him Jesus because he's going to come and save his people from his sin. This is what Jesus came to do to save. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. The bows in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, You are the Son of God. That day they had encountered his compassion, his power, his mercy, and they do what no Jew would have done, but they'd seen it. They worship him and recognize him for who he is Creator, the one who creates bread seemingly out of just nothing, out of thin air, the ruler who has authority over nature. The son of God, for they see him doing the work that only God can do. And culturally, that's what sons did. That's what it meant to be a son, to do the things that your father did. And finally, they get it, just for a moment. But you know, I I can't help but wonder if the next day, after they got to the other side, and finally they got some rest, and they woke up, say, what happened last night? How had they forsaken their, their old identities, their heritage? We were afraid and tired. We, we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, it's still so, so early in the story. They don't really know yet who Jesus is. It, it almost feels like dating. And, and when you're in that dating relationship, accidentally saying, I love you too soon, right? You know what I mean? The, a moment of excitement and delight. The words come out and you can't get them back. Did we really worship him? Did we really do that? Should we have done that? Because it doesn't happen again in Matthew for a long time. Not until the very, very end of the book is this language used of the disciples' response to Jesus. Not until after they see him on the cross his compassion leading to his own death in that's highest expression. It's not until after the resurrection, the greatest moment of power ever seen, when Jesus doesn't just walk on water, but tramples on the grave, when he doesn't just calm the sea, but promises the end of evil. It doesn't happen until Jesus, fresh out of the tomb, shows up looking for his friends, the ones who have abandoned him, denied him, but Jesus alive again comes and shows them mercy. For what they saw on this long day in the middle of the story It was still just only the beginning, only a glimpse. But we, looking back, we've seen it all. Not just a man, not just a teacher or an inspiration, but God himself. The king we want, the king that we need, the king who is ours if we will trust him. And I know this morning there's some of you here who may not believe a word of any of this. And I get that. but don't you at least want it to be true? This is what he offers. Hope in our needs, comfort in our fears, restoration in our failures. What would it take for you to worship someone? Let's pray. Father in heaven, my prayer today is simply that you would help each one of us to see Jesus, for who he truly is, the creator and sustainer of the universe. Would we respond to him in that way of worship? We pray this in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.